Well, uh, it is great to be back with all of you, and uh, I just have to say a, a huge thank you to the staff. Uh, Pastor Lance, Pastor Britt, Colleen, Angela, Shane, Kayla, uh, the crew that has kept everything going these last three months, they have done a wonderful job. So, um, what did we do on sabbatical? I know that that is the question, so I'm gonna try and give you three months in about, uh, I won't make it in 30 seconds, but give me a couple minutes, I'll try and give you some of the highlights. Uh, we had a wonderful time, and I just have to say thank you so much uh, to this church for allowing us this opportunity to take that time away. Burnett and I were laughing the first couple weeks. I napped so much. It was just bad. I mean, like, we're doing two naps a day. It was great. But um, uh, we started off, we had about a month in Italy. And uh, it was wonderful. Spent some time in Rome. And uh, then we got to take a cruise and go out to some of the Greek islands. Got to go to Athens. Uh, this is me standing on Mars Hill, which that was pretty cool to be standing there where uh, the Apostle Paul had talked to the Greek thinkers of his day and declared the gospel. Uh, we got to go to Ephesus, and this is the Colosseum, uh, the stadium, I should say, where uh, maybe you recall Acts 19, there was the riot of the silversmiths of Artemis, and uh, they were upset at Paul because so many were turning to Christ that they were turning away from the worship of Artemis, and they thought it was going to damage their business. And uh, this is where the riot happened, as they all stormed into this stadium. And uh, then that was okay, too. This is up in Tuscany, and... Uh, we're at this little bed and breakfast place, and they said, oh, the pool is just over the hill. And we stepped over the hill and went, oh, wow, I'm going to spend some time here. So that was good. Uh, and then we met this guy. That's pretty cool. I'm going to try and do that, I think, grow that. That was in Verona. And uh, then we went up to the Dolomites, which is the uh, Italian side of the Alps, and uh, they have kind of their version of the Olympic Discovery Trail. It used to be a railroad uh, bed, and now it's turned into a biking trail. And so I had a wonderful day there, uh, biking and seeing the sights. Just some gorgeous country. And uh, then we finished up in, with a couple days in Venice. So that was Italy. Had a great time there. Uh, and then we also got some time in Bend, Oregon, where two of our sons live, and uh, all the grandchildren are there. And these are the two newest additions to the herd. And so got some time with them, and I had a fun day with our two sons. Uh, we all went out uh, on razors and did some four-wheeling, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, then we actually made a trip back to North Carolina, where our youngest son, Matt, and his wife, Naomi, uh, moved about three months ago. So we had to go see them. We are with them for the 4th of July. And uh, then we came home for a few days and then took off and drove up into Canada, went up onto the prairies. The canola was in bloom, thousands of acres, these beautiful yellow blooms. Uh, but Burnett and I went to a little Bible college up there years ago. Hadn't been back since 1984, and they were having their centennial. So we went up and got to see some old friends that we hadn't seen in years and years. And then finished up in Langley, B.C. with our daughter Angela, her husband Matt, and uh, had a few days with them, and then I took a class at Regent College on 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which seemed appropriate since we're going to be working on our way through 1st John right now. So uh, let's see. Yep, that was it. So there you go. There's three months. Uh, now, lots, lots of stories in there, but a great time. Along the way, just so you know, it wasn't just sightseeing. I also read... Uh, 
I figured it out. It was 26 books and 6,500 pages. So got a fair bit of reading in as well, and, uh, which was really enjoyable. Well, you know, if, uh, if you've traveled in other cultures, you recognize that one of the most important things that any traveler has to learn when they go into another culture is how to ask for where the restroom is. That, that is the first phrase you need to learn. And uh, while we were in Italy, we noted that one of the more common designations for a restroom is a WC. It's a water closet. And uh, it's an old term. I think it still is commonly used in England. And seeing that, it reminded me of an old story. And maybe you know it. Uh, the story goes that uh, there was a woman, an English lady, who had traveled to Switzerland on vacation. She fell in love with it and decided she wanted to move there. And uh, so she wanted to rent a room. And not sure where to start, she had contacted a local minister there in Switzerland, wrote to him, and asked if he could help her locate a room that she could rent in the countryside. And uh, he obliged and very soon found the perfect spot in this little small village out in the countryside. And uh, she was very excited, was preparing for her move. And, uh, and upon getting home, though, a thought occurred to her that caused some concern. Because she knew that oftentimes these little villages up in the mountains, they didn't have all of the facilities that we would expect. And, and so she wondered if this place she was renting, if in fact they had uh, indoor plumbing. Did they have a toilet? And, and so she wanted to ask that, but asked discreetly. You know, she didn't want to use an outdoor privy. And so she sent him a note. And in the letter, she asked about the, the water closet issue, which she abbreviated the way the British usually do as a WC. And, and the minister got her letter. And unfortunately, WC was not a common abbreviation in his country, in Switzerland. And so racking his brain, trying to figure out what she meant, and knowing that she was English, he finally concluded that she must mean it's her abbreviation for a wayside chapel. <laughs> so she wanted to know if there was a country church nearby. And, and so the pastor responded as follows. This was his letter. Dear Madam, thank you for writing. I am very much looking forward to your move. Regarding your question about the location of the WC, the closest is situated approximately two miles from the home where you'll be staying. <laughs> It is located in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees. It is modestly sized with seating for approximately 300. It is open daily, but attendance is light during the week, with most preferring to wait and go on Sunday so all can be together. Thursday evenings are special, as an organist is present for a time of group singing. The acoustics are remarkable, and the happy sounds of all those gathered echo throughout the WC. As you can imagine, Sunday mornings are very crowded. Locals tend to arrive early. Many bring picnic lunches to make a day of it. It may interest you to know that my own daughter was married in the WC, and it was there she first met her husband. Due to my responsibilities in town, I can't go as often as I used to. In fact, I haven't been in well over a year, but I do miss it. Perhaps we can go together for your first visit. Sincerely, Pastor Meyer. Well, it's always good to know the context of the letter that you're reading, isn't it? Uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks going through another letter that was written a long time ago by another pastor, and not just any pastor, but one of the apostles who had walked with Jesus, the Apostle John. And the letter we're going to look at is the first of three that he wrote to some friends who were concerned not about 
water closets, but about a crisis that had shaken their fellowship as well as their confidence. And so personal confession here, when I first decided what to do, to do First John, okay, it's back before sabbatical ever started, and, and you're doing some advanced planning, and I knew I had about five weeks between the time I got back from sabbatical, and then we're going to start the fall series, that series called Rooted. So I'm thinking, well, what can we do for five weeks? And, and I liked some passages in First John, I thought, well, First John has five chapters, five weeks, that'll work great. So that's what I thought I'd do, before I really had gotten into it. And as I was on sabbatical, I'm reading 1 John, I'm suddenly realizing to myself, that was a really bad plan. So just let you know up front, uh, I have bitten off more than we can chew in five weeks. Uh, what I'm going to do is instead of trying to go through this uh, chapter by chapter, we're going to talk about some themes, and I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Um, before we get into the letter itself, and, and so as to avoid the air of the WC, I think we need to understand the context that I believe prompted John to write this letter. And if we don't, we may struggle, like that poor Swiss pastor, to understand why John says some of the things that he does. The letter doesn't succinctly state the problem because the original recipients didn't need John to tell them what was going on. They were living it, so they understood. Uh, but it's not hard to figure out what was going on when you look at the clues that are given in the letter and you combine them with things that we know about issues that were facing those early Christians. Uh, I think a good place to start might be with a little discussion about this guy named Corinthus. Uh, Corinthus is a name you won't find in the New Testament, but we do have some record of his writings and his teaching. Uh, he's mentioned by some early church leaders, uh, leaders who themselves were contemporaries of the Apostle John. One of those is a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp recorded a story that he heard told by another leader named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus recounted a time when uh, John, the Apostle John, an old man now, was on his way to a public bathing house in Ephesus. And he learned that this guy, Corinthus, was already inside. And when John heard about it, it said that John fled from the bathhouse and he cried out, let us fly, let the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So whoever this guy was, John recognized that he was a harmful force for that early church. So what did Corinthus teach that had old John so upset? Well, from what we can pick up from what some of these early authors relate about Corinthus, it appears that he taught something that we might call an early form of Gnosticism. It, it wasn't Gnosticism per se, and if you don't know what that term means, don't worry about it, okay? You can look it up later. But uh, one of the things they emphasized was a need to acquire secret spiritual knowledge, all right? Kind of an elevated knowledge that other people didn't have access to. And they also tended to draw some sharp lines between the physical and the spiritual parts of human nature. Uh, according to Polycarp, Corinthus affirmed that Jesus was a righteous man, but he denied the virgin birth. And Jesus, according to Corinthus, was just a man, and a very good man, but just a man. And that Jesus didn't really become special until his baptism. And Corinthus said that at that point, the spiritual Christ all right, a separate entity descended on the physical Jesus and kind of inhabited him, empowered him, 
but that that spiritual Christ had departed from the human Jesus before the crucifixion. So it was only the human Jesus who underwent suffering and death. And, and then he believed that Jesus was raised again by the power of God, but that the spiritual Christ remained separate because he was a spiritual, not a physical being. And so by keeping this bright line of distinction between the two, it opened up the door to this idea that we too could operate in two distinct, disconnected realms as people. At one level, we could physically live as mere men and women and following all of our natural impulses, but at the same time, separate and distinct from that physical reality, we could attain to divine knowledge and elevated spiritual revelation in our understanding and our relationship with God. So it's not rocket science to figure out that if you have done this kind of split in your mind, right, that, that I can have this high view relationship with God here, but that's not connected to my physical bodily existence down here, you've kind of opened the door up for all sorts of mischief. Um, it's interesting that Irenaeus tells the story of John and Corinthus crossing paths in Ephesus because one of the places that we were privileged to visit on our trip was the city of Ephesus. And this is a picture looking at what is left of the great library of Ephesus, which in its day was a fabulous place, thousands of documents. They were lost in a massive fire, uh, but the, the front of the library is still standing there. One of the things we learned about Ephesus was that while they had this beautiful, huge library right there, not too far away was also a huge brothel right in the center of the city. And between the brothel and the library was a secret tunnel. And you might say in a sense that that's what Corinthus was, was arguing for, that you could, you could have both. You, you could live in the tunnel. You could enjoy all the pleasures of the world. You could gratify yourself as you saw fit, but, but you could also jump over here and have all this higher knowledge and an elevated spiritual experience. You could have your cake and eat it. Um, that's what Corinthus was teaching. That it was okay for a follower of Jesus to live life in the tunnel. Now, whether it was Corinthus directly or some teacher like him, it seems apparent that some teaching like this had reared its ugly head in the church that John was writing to. And I do mean in the church. In chapter 2, John addresses a split that had occurred in this fellowship, a group of people, apparently a sizable group of people, who had left them. And in their wake, they had left a lot of hurt and a lot of confusion. Uh, the teachers who led them astray appeared to have been charismatic. They were persuasive. Uh, they posed as being spiritually elite, enlightened. Possibly they even claimed that they had supernatural revelation. We find in chapter 4 that John warns people to test the spirits. He says that there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. And so these people have been exposed to folks who claim to have a word from God. And yet John says, be careful who you're listening to. And as those who had remained faithful, that were feeling the pain of these broken relationships and even questioning if somehow they had missed some deeper truth, that John is writing his letter. 
And as you read through this book, you'll find that John phrases everything in very stark black and white terms. He talks about light and dark and good and evil and Christ and antichrist. He, there, there are no gray zones in the way that John writes because he wants to refute this false message and encourage these hurting people. One of the things he wants them to know is that they are secure in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They are secure in God's love. I think if you keep that scenario of what these false teachers may have been feeding to these people in mind as we work through the letter, I think a lot of things become more clear. As I said, rather than trying to work through this chapter by chapter, we're going to look at it thematically. Uh, John wrote this as a passionate defense of the gospel, not as a scholarly essay. And so the arguments of the letter jump around a lot. They're all kind of woven together. In fact, I, I actually suspect that John may have dictated this to a secretary. That was pretty common, what was called an amanuensis. And it, it almost has that feel of someone who is just passionately talking as someone else is writing it down. The Holy Spirit is moving in John's heart and mind, and he is just pouring out his concern, his teaching, and it's being copied down. The, the scholar F.F. F. Bruce says that attempts to trace a consecutive argument throughout First John, John have never succeeded. As you read the book, you'll see that. The, the threads weave in and out, but there are some, th some themes that consistently show up throughout this letter. Uh, there are several, there are at least four that I would draw your attention to. Uh, one of those we'll talk about next week in more detail, and that is the idea of walking in the light. And then what I'm gonna call walking in faith. And this has to do with the assurance that Jesus really is the Christ that there is no separation in who he is, and that as the Christ, we'll talk more about what that means, but it means that he is our deliverer. He is the one who brings us into relationship with God. And so we want them to walk in faith, trusting, knowing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And then he talks a lot about the walk of love and how faith and love have to walk hand in hand. And then he talks about walking with confidence, knowing that you are securely loved. That song that Sarah started teaching us this morning, hallelujah, I am who he says I am. I am his child. See what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. The fifth thread that I've introduced this morning would be John's refuting of these false teachers his insistence that you can't divide up the person of Jesus and you can't justify a discontinuity between what you believe and how you live. And what I'd like to encourage you to do, a little homework as we move through this series, is each week as we talk about one of these themes, uh, I'm just going to touch on a few highlights of those. I'd encourage you to read through the book of 1 John every week. It'll take you 10 minutes or less, and, and just look for one of those threads. See how it keeps surfacing in there. Um, like I say, it'll take you about 10 minutes and uh, be a great way to begin to interact with this letter. So we're going to start by reading the first chapter of 1 John, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John opens this letter actually rather abruptly. Uh, if you look at most letters, they start off with, uh, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you know, greetings to the saints, wherever. That's a pretty standard opening letter. John just dives in and, and he just says, uh, what was from the beginning? It's like he is, he is eager to get to the topic to address these people. And as you read that opening verse, maybe you thought back to the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John opens up with a phrase kind of similar. John 1.1, in his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus Christ was with the Father at the beginning of creation. Uh, here in 1 John 1, he talks about that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, seen, looked upon, touched. And, and you might think at first that, well, maybe he's talking about the same thing, the beginning of time. I actually think that uh, while in John 1, 1, he's establishing that Jesus is the eternal one who is with the Father from the beginning of all time. Um, in 1 John 1, he's talking about a different beginning. It, it's a beginning that he says he personally had heard and seen and touched. It was the beginning of the proclamation and the demonstration of what he calls the word of life. One of John's terms for the gospel. He says, I was there. When Jesus began to preach this good news that God has opened up a way for people to be reconciled to God and to be filled with his spirit. Uh, one scholar has noted that in John's gospel, the core of his message is that Jesus is the Christ. The one who'd been long awaited. John wants me to know that, that the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Christ. But now in 1 John, he wants me to know that the Christ is Jesus. Those who had tried to separate him and say, oh no, there's some kind of big division. John's saying, no, no, no. No, the Messiah, the one you're waiting for, that is Jesus. They are one and the same. And so John opens with this powerful apostolic claim, which is, I was with Jesus at the beginning. He wants them to know that no matter how convincing or eloquent or highly educated any teacher might come who professes to have a, a new and a deeper understanding of the things of God, he wants them to know that uh, he was a firsthand witness. He says, I, I was with him. I 
talked to him. I was taught directly by him. I shared meals with him. I watched him perform miracles. It was John who stood at the foot of the cross that Jesus entrusted his mother to John's care. It's John that was in the upper room when Jesus appeared and he heard Jesus' invitation to touch his hands and examine his wounds. He had walked with, eaten with, touched the risen Lord. So he says, I know what I'm talking about. I was there. John was the longest living of any of the apostles. And among the ancient church leaders, there were the men we often call the uh, church fathers. We have records of two, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, and Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, who had sat under John's teaching. And uh, Papias wrote that he could get from, what he could get from books was nothing compared to what had come to him from a living and abiding voice. He said, listen, you just can't match having talked to the man who walked with the man. So John is not shy about his credentials. Because I was there. I was a personal friend of Jesus. I can say that I have stood on the same chunk of rock where the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. But John is saying, I was standing right next to Jesus when he taught, and I heard his words with my own ears. I watched him with my own eyes. I touched with my own hands. And so right from the outset, this elderly spiritual father is working hard to bandage and encourage and unify a group of believers whose fellowship had been wounded and torn apart by false teachers. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. It says, we want you to have fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants to rekindle in these shaken followers of Jesus, their sense of identity and community and, and fellowship with those who hold to the faith once delivered, as Jude said. They, they may have been feeling out of fellowship with some who had left them, who had once professed to be their brothers, but John wants them to know that they stand solidly in the fellowship of those who had walked and talked with Jesus. And standing in that fellowship also meant that they stood in fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Christ. I want to remind us all that a great part, an important part of the Christian journey, is that we're called to take the journey together. I read a story recently about a guy named David Glasheen. Uh, David was at one time a millionaire stockbroker in Australia, but in 1987, he lost everything during a stock market crash. And his response to the loss was that he moved to a deserted peninsula where he has lived alone for over 25 years. And the problem is now he's getting older, he's approaching 80, and he recognizes he's not as strong as he once was and that it's not safe to be living out there all by himself. So he's trying to find somebody else that would like to move out there with him to kind of look after him, and then they can continue being a hermit once he's gone. And he's having a hard time finding someone. Uh, so if you've always dreamed of life on a desert island, David would like to talk to you. You know, I've known Christians like David, who at some point, something bad happened in the context of the church. They got burned. And trust me, there are plenty of stories, and you all can relate plenty of stories 
of churches that have not behaved well. And people got burned. And they got hurt. And like David, some of them decided that the best way to deal with the hurt would be just to pull away and go live in isolation someplace. Just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. But kind of like David has discovered from a personal point, physical point, spiritually, you're in a bad place if you've got nobody around you. We were called to be part of a family, to be together. And some of us have gone through some difficult situations. People can leave some bruises. And yet the solution isn't to pull away. And John comes to these people and he says, listen, I want your joy. I want your fellowship to be complete. Our joy will be complete as your fellowship is complete. And, and I just want to encourage you. If you're one of those that you're just hesitant. I mean, face it, the fact you're here this morning means you're probably not in the place where you've totally pulled away. Now, some of you are watching online, and maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's not so much that uh, we're coming out of uh, the past couple years of COVID. Maybe it's just that this feels like a safer thing to do to stay by yourself and just watch rather than to enter back into a community. But it's why we think that small groups are so important. You know, what we do on a Sunday morning, this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? What really matters is that we're in relationship with others. And that's why we think that being in a small group is so important. This fall, Pastor Lance is going to be getting small groups restarted and new groups started up. And I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, move beyond Sunday morning. Don't make this the sum total of your Christian communal experience. Get into a place where you can build some friendships. You can have people that are praying for you. You're praying for them. You're helping each other. Find a way to be in fellowship. Well, with his credentials and his authority established, John launches into this defense of the truth. And he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Years ago, Burnett and I hosted a Bible study for some neighbors. And most of them were not Jesus followers. The idea of the Bible study was just to talk about who was Jesus, what were his claims. And, and we're having a great time together, but one of the neighbors, it turned out, had a lot of experience with Eastern religions. In fact, he had actually sat under the teaching of the Dalai Lama at one point. And as we were talking about Jesus, he just said, well, you know, really, the, the gospel is the same as, as what we you know, teach in, in Hinduism. And, uh, and that we began to discuss this idea of the, the balance, uh, the tension between light and darkness. And of course, in his worldview, those two things form part of one whole, right? There, there's this belief in the opposition. You've seen that symbol, the yin and the yang, that light and dark balance each other out, and that within the light, there's a little bit of dark. Within the dark, there's a little bit of light, and, and that all forms part of the whole. And in fact, he maintained that it was important to maintain balance. He said that he wanted to be good, but not too good. See, you got to keep balance there. And to live well meant that you had to find a way to embrace both the light and the dark, and the dark, which is appealing at one level. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful, for one thing, if everybody was right, no matter what you believe? That underneath it all, everybody actually believes the same thing. And in that case, there's no need to ever disagree about anything. In fact, there's not even a need to be too concerned about our darker impulses if they're just part of the whole. Maybe they're an important part of the whole. 
just an underappreciated part. But then again, if everybody needs a little evil just to stay balanced, how can I trust that your little bit of evil won't be the little bit that does me great harm? That's kind of an unsettling way to live life. Who's to say that what you consider a nice balance for your life isn't a crushing blow to mine? I remember being in high school and having a teacher one time suggest that while we were young, we should try out things. You know, if you never, in fact, he talked about it. You've never been drunk, try drinking. Why? Well, because you're young and society will forgive you. So go ahead and try some stuff because now's the time. People will give you room. And a couple of us raised our hands and we said, well, we get your point, but what if the, the thing that I try, and we just had this happen not too long ago in that high school, what if I decide I'm going to try getting drunk and I crash the car and my friend dies? Does it matter if society forgives me for that? How much, how much evil, how much bad is too much, or what's just the right balance? Apparently, the teachers had, that had torn this early group of believers apart had suggested something similar. According to them, with enough spiritual insight, categories like good and evil, light and dark, could sort of slip away into irrelevance. And all the things we label as good and evil could somehow be harmonized into a, a new and a higher and a more enlightened kind of understanding. And, and to that, John says, poppycock. He says, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all, not a speck. Darkness can no more be part of his nature than a shadow can be found by staring into the sun. I've told the story before about our son, David. He was, I think, about five years old. He was in Sunday school, and uh, the teacher asked him how he would draw a picture of God. And he said, you'd have to use a white crayon, and you'd probably break it. That's a great description for God who has no evil in him. This is the passage that I pointed my Eastern friend to that evening as we talked. God is not a composite of the yin and the yang. God is holy, pure, and righteous 100%. God is light, and in him is no darkness. Now, why is it so important in John's mind to establish that baseline? Well, because personal behavior often flows out of theology, both good and bad. What do I believe about the ultimate nature of reality? What do I believe about God, if there is a God? That will affect how I live. My Eastern friend explained that his theology told him he should be good, but not too good. He needed a little yang to keep him in balance. But that's really messing things up, isn't it? If we begin to embrace evil in ourselves as somehow an important part of our character. And so you had these people who had pulled this neat little trick that attaining spirituality, they could embrace behaviors that some might call evil, but for them, it wasn't evil anymore. And so John says to that kind of convoluted thinking, liar. God is light, in him there is no darkness. 
You can't live in the dark tunnel between the library and the brothel and claim to be living in the light. We're going to talk next week more about what this whole concept of walking in light means. But um, one of the big takeaways from this letter, I think, is a warning to be careful who you follow. 1 John 2.18. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, as soon as we see that term, Antichrist, a lot of us start hearing ominous music playing in the background. We start looking for the master arch-villain to come creeping out on the stage, right? The Antichrist. And, and John has, talks elsewhere about the Antichrist, all right? a, a character who is diametrically opposed to Christ, a, a powerful leader. But here he says, listen, there are a lot of Antichrists. There are a lot of people who would distort and oppose the message of Jesus. And, and the issue isn't just, how do you spot the big baddie? So the issue is, be careful who you're following. Because there's a lot of people out there with a lot of distorted messages. It's interesting, he talks about the last hour. That was 2,000 years ago. I was talking to some friends about this recently, and it struck me that uh, when we talk, if you ever played soccer, if you've got kids that played soccer, maybe you've played soccer, you know when you get down to the last two minutes of the game, you know what happens? They stop the clock at two minutes. Now, now there is two minutes left in the game. It's, it's the last two minutes of the game, except it's the referee that's keeping the time at that point. Because he knows that there's some penalty time and other things that may be affecting play. It may actually be more than two minutes. But, but the referee is the one who decides when the game is really over. In a sense, John's saying, listen, guys, we, we are down to the last two minutes. We don't know exactly when the clock runs out, but we, we know that, that we're there. And the referee, the one who's in charge of the game, he knows what the time is. But while we're in this final phase, yeah, there are a lot of people that are going to show up that will want to distort and oppose the message of Jesus. And so watch out who you follow. What does that look like in our own world? Well, while some of the specifics may have changed, I think there are still plenty of voices that advocate for a diminished view of Jesus and a divided life. That we would give an assent in words to high-sounding spiritual ideals like love and faithfulness and forgiveness and humble service. But, but then at the same time, we find justifications, or they would suggest to us justifications to use the tools of the world to establish the kingdom of heaven. Or worse, using the language of heaven to cover up deeds of darkness. Let me suggest just two areas where I see that happening. You can think of more. One of those is the area of competing worldviews. Now, where do you see competing worldviews probably expressed most uh, with the most debate in our society today, it would be in the realm of politics, wouldn't it? That, that's where you see competing worldviews colliding. And we all know there is plenty of tension and turmoil going on in our nation over things like politics. And when you think about Jesus, Jesus himself came into a very hot political environment. There was all kinds of tension, all kinds of unrest in Jesus' day. He came to people who were thoroughly disgruntled with the inequities and the abuses of the bureaucracy that controlled their lives. 
And, and they were fed up with everything from taxes to racial oppression to lack of religious freedom. And, and Jesus shows up and claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, who had been long waited for as the great deliverer. That's why he's here, is to deliver us. And yet, as you follow Jesus' ministry, you find that he didn't do a thing about their political situation. And it bothered them. It bothered some of his closest friends a lot. John the Baptist, right, who was the herald that came to announce that here, here he is. Here is the deliverer. He has come. You suddenly find John now in prison, you know, imprisoned by that oppressive government, not being set free, who sends some of his followers to Jesus to say, are you really the one? Because I just thought you were going to like, you know, overthrow this whole system here. I, th I thought that's what this was about. And yet, without ever forming a political action party or fomenting a social rebellion, the message of Jesus and the lives of his people eventually upended the Roman Empire. And I'm not for a moment suggesting Christians should not be informed, active voters, or lobby for righteous causes. But I'll tell you what I am concerned about. I'm concerned that sometimes in our zeal to promote things that Jesus loves, some of us, as evangelicals, have resorted to language and tactics that I don't think Jesus would have used. I mean, we say, sure, I love my neighbor, just like Jesus. Even though I know that politically we don't agree on stuff, I love him. But, but first, I just have to post this zinger on my Facebook page that's just going to demolish him. He'll thank me later. <laughs> I fear sometimes that our desire to win overshadows the call and the example of Jesus. And if Jesus has been overshadowed, I think John would say that we're walking in the dark. John says, you can't do that. I was there. I saw what it looked like when God himself stepped into this world and interacted with all of his fallenness. He didn't minimize his holiness one little bit, but neither did he minimize his love. Or, to take another one, let's talk about religion. Even worse is when leaders use spiritual authority, Christian spiritual authority, to take advantage of those that they lead. They use the message of light to cover the deeds of darkness. Sometimes that's for financial gain. We've all seen them. The hucksters that in the name of Jesus manage to rake in millions and millions from those who really are looking for something genuine but, but they're being used for financial gain. Or we see those that seem to be all about personal brand building, about becoming a superstar. And you begin to wonder if what matters most for them is being center stage or keeping Jesus center stage. Or as we've had to deal with in recent days, far too often we have seen people in powerful positions who have used that position for sexual abuse. While we're on sabbatical, I listened to a podcast that was talking about some of these scandals that have recently rocked some major Christian institutions. And it just broke my heart to listen to these stories of people who had been in positions of leadership for many years, 
who were guilty of all sorts of abusive behavior, but at the same time kept up a false face that all was well. They said all the right words, they ran all the right programs, but it was all being used as a cover to do great wrong and evil. And when they got discovered in one place, they didn't leave ministry, they simply moved to another. And sometimes other people in leadership knew what had happened, but they didn't want to expose it because they were afraid that it might cost the organization. It might cost them in reputation or it might cost them in dollars. The thing I marvel at is the split that has to occur in a leader's mind that would allow him or her to live in both of those worlds without personally imploding. And John would say, you can't do that. God is holy. In him there is no darkness. If we're going to speak for God, it's not to say that we are perfect people. He says, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. I mean, we, we, we sin. But, but to live in two worlds and to treat it as okay, and to cover for it, and to use a position of spiritual authority as a cover for bad behavior, to put it mildly, doesn't fly. And as some of you are among those who have ever been used or abused by someone who was in a place of spiritual authority, I just have to say I'm so sorry. It's so wrong. There is no justification. And sometimes the wound has been compounded because you've been left with some sense of obligation to protect that person's reputation. May God deliver us from ever turning an organization or a leader into an idol for which we would sacrifice holiness on the altar of success. True success in the body of Christ can only come when there is humility, there is transparency, and there is a genuine pursuit of holiness, a genuine pursuit of the God in whom there is no darkness. So be discerning in who you follow. 1 John 4.1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, there are two words that John loves that you'll see throughout this letter. He loves the concepts of light and life. The message that John wants everyone to hear is that God sent his son Jesus into this dark world to offer us the path and the power to come out of the tunnel. There will always be those who try to distort that message. And wherever they gain influence, they will bring pain. But John says, listen to me. I was there. I knew him. I listened to him. I touched him. I saw him. And what Jesus was all about, what he is still all about, is light and life. He didn't just come to show us what a really good life would look like so we could just feel bad about ourselves. He came to rescue the hearts of all who long for rescue. And he sent his Holy Spirit to bring light and life, to empower us to walk as he walked. John's going to hit this theme all through this book, that we would walk as Jesus walked. 
And I would say if, if you're a person that maybe you are just checking this out online, or you've come this morning and, and you've never considered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that is what he's about. And I don't know what bad experiences you may have heard or, or experienced yourself when it comes to the church. I won't try to defend the bad things that some people have done and have tried to put the name of Jesus over it. But that is not who Jesus is. Jesus loves us. He's ready to forgive us. He's come to give us light and life. And we could go around the room this morning, a whole lot of us could share our stories of how Jesus has changed our hearts. We are not the people that we were. He brought us out of the tunnel and he has changed our lives. And, and if you're one of those people that says, man, I could use some light and some life, come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Lance, maybe talk to the person sitting next to you. Say, what does it mean? to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have given your heart to him, then John's question would be, are you walking with him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just confess that there have been a lot of things done in your name that you would not want your name attached to. But I pray, Lord, that we would be people who hunger after walking with you. And that if there are some dark tunnels in our lives, some places that we have, we've been willing to lead that double life, to be compromised, oh, Holy Spirit, would you please convict us and draw us out of those shadowy places? Thank you so much that you love us that you came as the one to rescue us. We give you our thanks, our praise, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to walk in your footsteps. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.